to the Informed Secular Minds podcast. Thank everyone for joining us. Uh, we have a special conversation tonight of Corey and myself. Welcome our guest, Matt Cawthorn. We want to thank Cat is Cat, as always, for assisting us with the show tonight and Young on 399 for hosting us on Periscope. You can follow us there and on Twitter at ISM Podcast. How's it going, guys? It is going fantastic. Uh, very, very excited about the broadcast this evening. How have you been, Scott? I've been doing well, spending some time with the family and hanging out. How about you? Yeah, kind of the same. Uh, it's been uh, it's been a weird week of either either constant stress and nonstop go, or total laziness, just sitting on my couch playing video games. It's been kind of a weird up and down thing, but it's been nice. I've been having a good time on the old PlayStation. All right, Xbox for myself. Oh, we're gonna have to have a debate one day. I can't believe you just said that PlayStation. Oh. <laughs> Matt, how's it going? It's going pretty good, man. Um, just kind of hanging out, enjoying my day off. Oh, those are always nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, before we get going, I want to jump into uh, uh, this week's truth pursuit that we're going to be discussing. Um, last week was Age of the Earth. And um, I didn't get a lot of interaction, but I think it's probably it's pretty nailed down somewhere around the 4 billion year mark. But um, this week's Truth Pursuit will be uh, thermodynamics. Thermodynamics. That's an exciting topic, especially for the, uh, for the, for the nerds. I always end up just like skipping right over this and having to do like research to refresh my memory or getting like way too into it. And then it just gets boring for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and, and that was my point is, um, as atheists, we're often dealing with arguments that typically deal with the, the second law. And um, I'm just not real familiar with all of it myself. So this is going to be a good one for the truth pursuit because I'm going to need the interaction. I'm going to need the education. I'm going to need people to, to explain to me. Like, I, I have the laws and I've read them. And, you know, to an extent, I sort of understand the the uh, the entropy aspect and the the chaos, you know, um, but closed systems and open systems. And I would just like it, uh, for us to discuss it throughout the week. And, you know, I hope that I'd be able to get a chance to do a periscope and we can really get into it. Just how does it pertain when the theist uses the second law for their argument? And why is that from our perspective incorrect and, and how to go about sort of for the layman to just kind of, cause that's what I am. And I, I don't know enough about it to, to completely attack that argument. And so I kind of, like you said, either go around it or just get way too into it and get bored because I, I don't know it. So I'm going to need the interaction from everyone to, to help me out. Yeah, it's definitely a, a point that I've heard um, uh, plenty of apologists rely on uh, invoking the second law of thermodynamics, especially as some sort of justification for um, for there, there, there must be a creator. There must be, there must be some kind of force uh, organizing all of this. It, it's interesting how, uh, much like the ontological argument, that seems to uh, be a way to demonstrate. Well, it's too unbelievable to think that there isn't some kind of, some kind of prime mover. Um, but I've, I've never, I've never heard a successful or convincing argument that gets from that point, even if it, even if it were scientifically valid. 
um, from that point away from from deism and to some kind of actual scriptural based monotheistic doctrine. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a strange leap where we can, we can try to demonstrate something either ontologically or because of some sort of um, uh, perceived flaw in scientific knowledge and then use that as a springboard right into uh, a favored desert myth. Um, that's, that's always been a little interesting to me, but I'm, right. I'm excited at the chance to, to, to delve in and. Uh, well, and the uh, way, I, the way I've always had it argued to me, you know, is, they say, what about the second law of thermodynamics? And then without going into that, they'll say something like a tornado doesn't go through a junkyard and put together a car on the other side of it. You know, it has all the parts all spin around a cab and it doesn't put together a car. And I'm, that's obviously not going to happen. And I don't know how that pertains. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't exactly rely on their, the science that they're claiming at the start. It just goes off onto this weird tangent in my view. So, I just really like yeah, to break it down. That one has always struck me as a little bizarre because even if a tornado did go through a junkyard and produce a, a 747 or a Lamborghini or, or whatever complex machine is, uh, is suggested for the thought experiment, um, those are objects that we are familiar with. And right. to somehow relate that to natural biological creatures versus synthetic machines, wow. obviously – yeah, it kind of goes to the uh, the watchmaker aspect, right? Where, oh, if you're walking along the beach, they'll say, you see a watch, you know immediately that it was built. How come you don't? But they're contrasting that watch against the rest of nature, which doesn't look built. <laughs> right. Built. And here's the thing about watches and 747s and Lamborghinis. They tend right. to not include superfluous parts. When you <laughs> add something to a Lamborghini or a watch or a, or a Boeing jet – those parts that you're adding, you, you're including those for a reason. You don't have leftover parts from the last machine that you just leave. There's not a third wing that used to be needed but isn't anymore, unlike <laughs> what we find when we examine biology and we can, we can look at organisms and find that, indeed, there are, uh, as you discussed during the Truth Pursuit on evolution, there are uh, vestigial bits. There are, there are leftovers. There are things that are not efficient, but evolution doesn't really care because evolution isn't out to make a perfect creature. It's out to make a creature that is likely to make it to the age of procreation and, uh, and uh, continue, continue spreading its genes around. Exactly. So I'm looking forward to this week's uh, conversation and um, definitely going to try and get a scope in so that we can have some good interaction on it. Um, that being said, why don't you let us know what tonight's going to be, though? Because that's what I'm most excited about right now. Oh, me too. I'm 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 seriously I am seriously tickled. Um, for for anyone who is not familiar with Captain Atheist, you are in for a real treat tonight. Uh, he is a gentleman of high caliber, a thoughtful commentator on society and culture, and a profound voice among the online atheist community. When vitriol and emotion rises to a fever pitch, I have often found him to be a cogent speaker impassioned by his dedication to reason and respect, both for each other and for oneself. A fierce humanist, Matt is the first to criticize unhealthy ideas and discriminatory attitudes, especially when these kinds of hate are reinforced by the supposed justification of divine authority. The Good Captain is a capable counter-apologist and a staunch defender of personal autonomy and choice. You can follow Matt on Twitter and Periscope at uh, uh, C-A-P-T Atheism. 
It's Captain Atheism uh, shortened. C A P T A T H E I S M. And I strongly encourage you to spend some time enjoying the passionate posts he shares on his blog. Um, jot this down, guys. This is you will you will thank me for this later. You want to be uh, engaging on um, uh, on on Matt's blog. It's EpicureanPop.wordpress.com. That's E P I C U R E A N P O P. WordPress.com. Uh, here's a sample of how he began a recent post entitled The Monopoly on Morality. Quote, I'd like to discuss two ideas. First and foremost, I'd like to address the idea that referring to religion as a whole when discussing various beliefs and ideologies is not fair. Essentially, it breaks down to people, atheists and theists alike, being upset when an anti-theist says something to the effect of all religion is harmful. I agree with this sentiment and, for the most part, regard this to be a rather obvious statement. Second, and on a related note, I will discuss the ridiculous notion that atheism sits idle while religion is out feeding the hungry and helping the poor. Meanwhile, the body count of every religion rises and the Pope sits in a castle on a throne. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone indeed. We are delighted to welcome Matt on the program tonight. If you would like to join the discussion and talk with us directly this evening, you can do so by calling 646-564-9551. Matt, Captain Atheist, welcome to the program. Hey, uh, thank you very much for that, sir. Um, I appreciate that very eloquent and thoughtful uh, introduction. Uh, Hello, everybody who doesn't know me. Um, I am Captain Atheist, also known as uh, Mac Cawthorn. Um, it's a real pleasure to be invited here on ISM, and uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, the discussion we're going to have. Likewise, likewise. Um, this is um, something something very, very exciting for me. For those who have been following Dopinephrine since, since I've been uh, engaging in the debate over religion, a lot of people came to know me through uh, Periscope. Same with uh, uh, El Dutorino, Scott. Um, what we would what we would do, especially last summer when I began to do this, is we would have uh, we start a Periscope, some kind of a title, uh, and invite people to come in and uh, and talk with us. You, you, sometimes you would uh, find yourself talking with fellow atheists who would have uh, maybe general questions about about positions or things that were bothering them. You would have occasional doubters who were uh, looking for a different perspective on, uh, on the world or on theology. Uh, and of course, you get plenty of theists, uh, people who uh, are believers uh, in God, who want to come in and uh, either, either defend their beliefs or uh, attack what they perceive to be ours. Um, it can be a lot of fun. It can be, it can be fantastic exercise uh, for the mind. Um, it's, it's certainly something that we, that we, speaking for myself, I should say that I try to make at least somewhat entertaining without delving into entertainment. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a way to, to engage with people in a, in a, as respectful as possible way, uh, in order to have the broader conversation. And that is how, uh, I came into contact with, uh, Captain Atheist. He had a remarkable scope, um, one that I found myself looking forward to and would jump into just to hear somebody with more experience than myself uh, uh, do what I was aspiring to do. Um, you should you should definitely be following him on Periscope. Uh, again, it's the same as I said before, and it's the same on Twitter. C A P T atheism. Uh, 
Um, that's where you can get Captain Atheist. Um, he, he scopes fairly regularly, and he usually gives you a heads up on Twitter. So you can, uh, you can engage in the conversation that way. Listen in, give him some love, or tell him, tell him why you hate his guts. Whatever you want to do, just make sure that uh, you are aware of his presence and engage in the conversation. Um, Matt, how long have you been, how long have you been doing uh, Periscope? Um, actually I am coming up, I, I think I either am at a year already, or I will have a year in April. I don't remember exactly when I started, but, uh, yeah, I've been going at this for about a year now. Um, here's, here's, I think, uh, uh a lot of the people that, that I know, uh, the people that have been associated with the show in the past are people that, um, are, are primarily known or, or got known through Periscope. But with Matt, it's a little bit different. While that's how I got to know him, um, and while Scott and I have been atheists for quite some time, we weren't openly engaging nearly as much as we do before Periscope. So our story, at least as far as the public is concerned, is relatively recent. But Matt, you've been doing versions of this for, uh, for quite some time. Is that correct? Um, well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I, I was really doing anything, uh, really significant or not. Um, but I, I just always felt the need to engage with people in discussion. Um, anywhere I found the conversation, I would put myself into it. Um, obviously in real life, I would engage with people, um, though not as frequently as on the internet and stuff. Um, I've been chasing around various, uh, you know, uh, internet famous atheists for years and kind of engaging in those scopes or excuse me, those videos. And, um, I started my blog a little while before, um, I started my doing my broadcasts and I always had the desire to be out there and be talking to people. And when I kind of found Periscope, it just, seemed like a good fit for me and I really do just enjoy engaging with people. I, I, I find the, dis, the discussion, whether it, you know, becomes uh, angry and, you know, uh, impassioned, I guess, or, you know, whether it's just calm discussion, it, it really never mattered to me because, uh, it's really about the discussion itself. It's it's about engaging others. <clears throat> the uh, the I, I've got to again not to not to turn this into a into a complete blowjob fest, but um, I want to compliment the blog again just because <laughs> whenever there's a, whenever there's a new post or or I or I or I dig back through uh, and and there are there's still plenty on there that I have not gotten to. Um, but I always kind of find myself, um, you know, nodding along like this is this is right. This is so reasonable. Like uh, I, I find it uh, very rewarding uh, to uh, to hang out on uh, on Epicurean pop. It also got me to go and look up Epicurious, who, uh, to my shame, I was not familiar with at all. And so I Googled the word and ended up uh, spending a, a feverish evening uh, learning as much as I could about Epicurious and his uh, his remarkable life. Uh, there's uh, there's some pretty cool stuff to uh, to learn to learn there. Yeah. Um, oh, what did you say? 
Um, I, yeah, I, I dig Epicurus himself. I, I dug Epicurus specifically because of his trilemma, uh, the problem with evil. And um, it just really inspired me to, you know, make things as simple and easy to understand as possible. I, I want the things that I say to be palatable to everyone. I mean, not, and not to say that I'm dumbing anything down because I don't think that's the case. What I want to do is make my words readily understood to everyone. <clears throat> and that's what I try to do. And I think that is to some degree some of the fault of more articulate and better educated atheists is that they tend to come at the situation from an aspect of um, education in that they're presuming a level of knowledge on others that they just don't have. Um, we as atheists oftentimes encounter, um, you know, people who clearly don't understand the things that they're uh, trying to defend or, you know, trying to say are wrong. And I think it is kind of the responsibility of laymen such as myself uh, to try to break it down in metaphors and analogies and things like that so that at the very least people get where we're coming from, if not further understand the subject better. That's, that's very well said. Um, and I, and I have to, and I have to, um, I have to agree with that. Um, it's, it's, it's very easy I think while I'm not, I don't have like a college degree or anything like that. Um, when I became interested and passionate about atheism, I mean, there was like a long period of time where, yeah, I, I know I'm an atheist, meaning I, I know that I, that I don't believe in God or gods. Um, but once I started to actually want to be able to talk about that and do it well, it was kind of uh, kind of a, a leap right into the deep end of intellectualism um, and, and you're right. Uh, a lot of people do sort of tend to assume, um, a level of knowledge about a, about a specific type, uh, of, of ideology that isn't widespread and we shouldn't assume or expect to be widespread. Uh, and that, and that can absolutely, uh, hinder or even shut down, um, what could otherwise be uh, a worthwhile and constructive conversation. Um, I, 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 one, one small example, I, I, uh, I, I do find myself often kind of going with an almost uh, epistemological approach. If, if somebody's saying, well, well, somebody makes the positive claim, uh, God is real. I might come back with, well, by what methodology did you determine that to be true? Like that's, that's kind of, that's kind of a, a like a weird and, and not natural way of asking that question. Uh, but it comes from responding to it so many times that I've narrowed it down to the most well-qualified response I can have. Um, I've heard you kind of the way that you just said it's, it, it can be, it can be better to employ an analogy um, where somebody will say, well, how do you know that God isn't real? And instead of saying, well, uh, the burden of proof is on the claimant or something along those lines, which is a true statement, um, I've heard you say something along the lines of, um, how do I know that God isn't real? How do you know that Zeus isn't real? 
and it's kind of a cold water moment of right there are there are lots of different god claims out there uh and i'm showing favoritism to mine what makes mine more true than others is essentially what you're saying but it's this very very cut to the chase uh kind of easily understood um uh, approach that i can uh, that i can appreciate uh, right well <clears throat> go ahead scott I was, it just reminded me of uh, i i like that approach and it it does make a lot of sense to do it because a lot of those gods are obviously now in the, in mythology, but it reminded me of a, a, a moment where <clears throat> Sam Harris had said that he often would use like Poseidon or something along those lines um, in sort of the, the same way that you were just suggesting. And that during that, uh, that moment, you know, it's fine. It works for maybe that, that person, but then he would receive thousands of emails from people who actually believe in Poseidon still and are scoffing at the fact that you're using this as an obvious, uh, you know, false God to make a claim, but yet here we still are worshiping this God. So um, I get it, but I guess you just can't win them all. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to touch on something that, that, uh, the open Ephraim was kind of talking about. Um, <clears throat> I always am reminded of multiple people's reaction to them seeing, uh, me with the book, the God delusion, um, which it, admittedly I, I did not finish. And part of the reason for that is part of the reason I do things the way that I do. Um, <clears throat> the God Delusion is an excellent book, but to a certain degree, most of the people who read it are probably already an atheist. And <clears throat> I don't think that's really helping anyone. As much as I admire Dawkins and Hitchens and the like, um, <clears throat> I've given the book to other people, um, once to Adias and once uh, to my sister, because she, she just kind of asked me what it was about. And I said, well, you know, just kind of take a look at it. And I handed her the book and she flipped through a few pages and she immediately handed it back to me. And she said, there's no way I can read this. She's like, these words are just way too big and way too long. <laughs> and that was essentially the same thing that my friend, my other friend who I gave the book, told me, he says, you know, I just can't do it, dude. This is so far beyond my reading comprehension level that it's, that it's, it's not even worth it for me to try. <clears throat> and that always kind of bugged me because even for me as someone who, I mean, as you said, uh, you know, you don't have a college degree and neither do I, but I have a fairly large voca vocabulary, but yet I still had to stop very frequently while re while reading the God delusion and, and look up words and what they meant and try to understand some of these rather complex concepts that I think Dawkins and, and people like him take for granted that they understand, you know, it, they, they right. presume a level of scientific literacy that just isn't there for the average person. <clears throat> I, yeah, Absolutely. There's another issue that I have with reading Dawkins, um, and this is why I have the God Delusion. I haven't started it yet, but I have it on audio because I have 
um, the selfish gene in print. And that exact same thing where I had to stop frequently and, and reread, you know, look up words, even if I knew what words meant. For me, the way Dawkins writes <clears throat> is a lot like the way he talks. And he sort of, this is going to sound stupid, but he sort of has like a, a sing-song kind of little poetry to his voice. And every now and again, and this just comes from the proper English and, and the way things happen, I suppose, it's, a, it's almost Yoda-like. It's almost kind of backwards. Not exactly, but just a little like gives you the conclusion before the premise and um, in some of his sentences. And so I find Dawkins easier to understand when I listen to him rather than when I try to read his printed word. Right. It's, it's kind of it's, it's a little like listening to, uh, you know, like a guru or, or someone who is a poet, I suppose. Um, that just the way they phrase things is, is it kind of sets you off. You're like, hey, wait, what now? <laughs> you have to think about it. You know, Dawkins talks a lot about uh, raising consciousness. Uh, that's how he typically frames his discussions about uh, Darwin. Um, that 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 Darwin raised our collective consciousness because we were capable of understanding this brand new idea. He was able to explain it and demonstrate it, um, and 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 that was, you know, obviously very beneficial to mankind. Um, do you think that this is that this is a problem that we should somewhat accept as being just part of the world, or? Or is this kind of is this kind of it all it all it all generally going over people's heads something that is maybe um, distinct and problematic now, but we should we should encourage our own raising of consciousness um, and try to maybe help people understand these concepts and encourage education that is more geared towards the layman, but doesn't just leave them being a layman and instead offers them a deeper understanding upon which these bigger bases can be built. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of the idea that it's, it's oftentimes not what you say, it's how you say it. Because if you, especially when you're trying to convey complex concepts, it becomes very difficult to reasonably break something down like for like for example when you guys were talking about thermodynamics earlier I, I was kind of sitting over here thinking to myself you know i don't know anything about therm like i've tried to read the laws of thermodynamics even on like wikipedia and stuff and it's it's i mean to me it's you know it's greek um you know the the language used is is very high and you know i, I wind up getting lost and and bored <laughs> And right. uh, I, I think for those that do understand those those kinds of concepts and and have a grasp of the language of or whichever language that may be, um, that it is kind of up to us to break it down in a much more palatable way. Uh, we've got um, our first caller here. I think that this is Cat uh, in California. Cat, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me okay? I can. How's it going? Oh, good. Um, I um, I have not had much exposure to Matt, but I wanted to throw in on the Praise Fest a little bit and also just um, put a, a tiny story out there um, that related to him. Um, and that was that um, when I first 
when I first uh, started talking about atheism, I realized that it was something I had um, felt for a long time but never talked about. And when I sat in the community of people, I was um, surprised, actually, to to hear a lot of the same views that we had all sort of come to individually through our own separate paths. Um, but one specific evening that I caught one of Matt Scopes, um, he was talking about something I'd never expressed, but had Jesus was not a valid sacrifice, and like the reasons for that. And um, it was just a surprise to hear someone saying the words that I would use exactly to express that same view, but I had never heard it anywhere before. And um, I don't know, it was like through that um, that observation and like a lot of other discussions, it was just, it's a comfort to know that even someone like me who um, up to that point had not read anything about atheism, uh, no atheist uh, books, um, not a lot of exposure to commentary, um, had come to the same conclusions that many, if not all, that I had met um, had already come to. It was comforting somehow. Felt right. Well, there you are. It's a, a testament to the value of the conversation. Um, I get that sense a lot, that there are people who sort of kind of know where they stand, but maybe they can't very well put that into uh, words. Um, maybe they want to. Um, there are plenty of people, there are always going to be plenty of people who just don't have an opinion, who just don't care. Uh, okay, technically, maybe they are an atheist if you were to explain the concept to them, but some people don't really have a use for labels, and they just don't – it doesn't make a difference either way to them, so who cares? But there are also those who uh, – and this feeds kind of back into Matt's point – who um, have a craving for more, uh, want to be able to express themselves in a deeper way, maybe don't know where to start. Uh, and, yeah. and sometimes when you run into one of these people on on uh, Periscope, it can be it can be very very rewarding. The, the the best experiences I've had on there are people who think they're maybe atheist and want to talk it through, and eventually end up kind of getting a bit of confidence and the ability to say, "Right, I knew it didn't make sense. Now I know why it doesn't make sense." Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't expect to find um, a lot of useful of anything really when I first got exposed to Periscope, but then I started noticing people doing something interesting with it. And once I sort of latched on <laughs> to the atheist community, I found just a gold mine of, of ideas, of knowledge, of free thinking exposure that I just really needed. And I'm so thankful. Anyway, um, Matt was definitely a part of that process, just feeling like, Hey, I'm home. You know, I've got, I've got my people now. I mean, I'm with my people. <laughs> So thank you, Matt. Oh, absolutely, Kat. And I appreciate your 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 compliment. Um and I I think that's another thing too that that specifically the those of us who do this online the like you guys do the broadcast, I do the Periscope, uh the atheist YouTubers and so on. Um, we bring about a, a sense of community and belonging uh, to an otherwise alienated demographic. And I think that's extremely, extremely important. And, uh, you know, it, it was kind of funny that, that you bring this up because I got this immense sense of joy just earlier because 
I'm in one of these really large Facebook groups, and it's not about anything specifically. Mostly it's just memes and people making jokes and stuff. But uh, someone happened to ask, am I the only atheist in the group? And there's 100,000 people in this group, and the comments just exploded. People were like, no, you're <laughs> not the only one I'm right there with you, dude. And I, I was just feeling this awesome. immense sense of pride when, when there, there's – all those people there and they're like, yeah, we're all together. And we, we all immediately kind of look across the aisle and nod to each other and go, yeah, I got you, bro. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I just want to, um, to tell my little story and to say, uh, nice to have you here and, um, catch you later. All right. Thank you very much, Kat. I appreciate it. It's, um, Atheists, by 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 many accounts, um, make up the largest minority in the United States. Uh, I don't have numbers for other countries, but it's certainly something that has drastically been on the rise. Um, at least people who are willing to say that they subscribe to new religion, even if they even if they don't um, self-apply the label atheist directly, uh, people that are willing to say that they are agnostic or atheist or none of the above. Um, that's been the number that's been growing for, for quite some time. I have a, um, an article here that I wanted to try to get through on the show, and this leads into it rather nicely. Um, this is from the L.A. Times. Um, it's called How Secular Family Values Stack Up. It's by Phil Zuckerman. Uh, and I will uh, – Scott, try to remind me because I've been so bad about this. I will try to tweet this out on the ISM podcast uh, Twitter feed so that everybody else can can have a look. All right. Hey, um, Corey, tweet this out on the ISM Twitter feed. So. Thank you. I knew I was forgetting something. That's such a big help. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It says, uh, more children are growing up godless than in any other time in our nation's history. They are the offspring of an expanding secular population that includes a relatively new and burgeoning category of Americans called the nuns, so nicknamed because they identified themselves as believing in nothing in particular in a 2012 study by the Pew Research Center. The number of American children raised without religion has grown significantly since the 1950s, with fewer than 4% of Americans reported growing up in a non-religious household, according to several recent national studies. That figure entered the double digits when a 2012 study showed that 11% of people born after 1970 said they had been raised in secular homes. This may help explain why 23% of adults in the United States claim to have no religion, and more than 30% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 29 say the same. So how does the raising of upstanding moral children work without prayers at mealtimes and morality lessons at Sunday school? Quite well, it seems. Far from being dysfunctional, nihilistic, and rudderless without the security and rectitude of religion, secular households provide a sound and solid foundation for children, according to Vern Bergsten, a USC professor of gerontology and sociology. I may be mispronouncing that first word because I am not familiar with it, admittedly. For nearly 40 years, Bengston has overseen the longitudinal study of generations, which has become the largest study of, religious, of religion and family life conducted across several generational cohorts in the United States. When Bengston noticed the growth of non-religious Americans becoming increasingly pronounced, he decided in 2013 to add secular families to his study in an attempt to understand how family life and inter intergenera intergenerational influences play out among the religious lists. 
He was surprised by what he found, high levels of family solidarity and emotional closeness between parents and non-religious youth, and strong ethical standards and moral values that had been clearly articulated as they were imparted to the next generation. Many non-religious parents were more coherent and passionate about their ethical principles than some of the religious parents in our study, Bankston told me. The vast majority appeared to live goal-filled lives characterized by moral direction and sense of life having a purpose. My own ongoing research among secular Americans, as well as that of a handful of other social scientists who have only recently turned their gaze on secular culture, confirms that non-religious family life is replete with its own sustaining moral values and enriching ethical precepts. Chief among those, rational problem-solving, personal autonomy, independence of thought, avoidance of corporal punishment, a spirit of questioning everything, and far above all, empathy. For secular people, morality is, pred is predicated on one simple principle— Empathic reciprocity, widely known as the golden rule, treating other people as you would tr like to be treated. It is an ancient universal ethical imperative, and it requires no supernatural beliefs. As one atheist mom who wanted to be identified only as Debbie told me, the way we teach them what is right and what is wrong is by trying to instill a sense of empathy, how, others, how other people feel. You know, just trying to give them that sense of what it's like to be on the other end of their actions, and I don't see any need for God in that. If your morality is all tied up in God, she continued, what if you are at some point what if you at some point start to question the existence of God? Does that mean your moral sense suddenly crumbles? The way we are teaching our children, no matter what they choose to believe later in life, even if they become religious or whatever, they are still going to have that system. The results of such secular child rearing are encouraging. Studies have found that secular teenagers are far less likely to care what the cool kids think or express a need to fit in with them than their religious peers. When these teens mature into godless adults, they exhibit less racism than their religious counterparts, according to a 2010 Duke University study. Many psychological studies show that secular grown-ups tend to be less vengeful, less nationalistic, less militaristic, less authoritarian, and more tolerant on average than religious adults. Recent research also has shown that children raised without religion tend to remain irreligious as they grow older and are perhaps more accepting. Secular adults are more likely to understand and accept the science concerning global warming and to support women's equality and gay rights. One telling fact from the criminology field, atheists were almost absent from our prison populations as of the late 1990s, comprising less than half of 1% of those behind bars, according to Federal Bureau of Prison Statistics. This echoes what the criminology field has documented for more than a century. The unaffiliated and the non-religious engage in far fewer crimes. Another meaningful related fact, democratic countries with the lowest levels of religious faith and participation today, such as Sweden, Denmark, Japan, Belgium, and New Zealand, have among the lowest violent crime rates in the world and enjoy remarkably high levels of societal well-being. If secular people couldn't raise well-functioning well moral children, then a preponderance of them in a given society would spell societal disaster, yet quite the opposite is the case. Being a secular parent and something of an expert on secular culture, I know well the angst among secular Americans experience when they can't help but wonder, could I possibly be making a mistake by raising my children without religion? The unequivocal answer is no. Children raised without religion have no shortage of positive traits and virtues, and they ought to be warmly welcomed as a growing American demographic. I thought that that would be uh, something important to touch on, first off, because the word secularism is right in the title of the show. So it's always good to, to try to stay on, on topic in that way. Um, but we're about, to, we're about to jump into the idea of anti-theism. And I thought that it might be helpful to, right off the bat, try to dispel some of the notions that uh, 
you can't be you can't be anti theism because even if you personally don't believe in God, theism is this great thing for 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 so many people. It's precisely what drives people to do good in the world. It's what gives people a moral standard. And this is this is not only it's completely untrue that that is the case. A moral code from a doctrine, from a monotheistic doctrine especially, is not one that informs people on how to be uh, moral people, ethical beings who are concerned about the welfare of their, of their fellow humans. No, and I like that. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Matt. Go ahead. No, it's okay. Go, go ahead, Scott. I, uh, I was just I uh, that number on the prison statistic is all I was going to mention. I had heard that before, <laughs> and it's it's mind blowing to me that it's it's that clear cut in black and white in that one instance, in a very important instance in our in our society. It's just a fascinating statistic. Absolutely, and actually, the only because uh, I read those statistics a while back, the only demographic that beat out atheists as a lower percentage of the prison population is are the Hindus. <clears throat> um, but I, I that was a brilliant article, by the way. Uh, though kudos to you for finding that, um, and please put it up on Twitter. I'd like to read it in its entirety. Um, that being said, going to the idea of secular households and things like that. Uh, I think as atheists, no matter what point we come to it, it teaches us a lesson that we never forget because when, when you realize that this, this God thing that it seems like everybody talks about and everybody believes in, you, you realize that's a lie or a falsehood or whatever you want to call it. Um, we, we, you kind of never forget that. You, you, you realize that for your entire life you believe something to be true when it's not, and that, I think that sticks with us. I, I don't think we can escape that anymore because it's just such a constant reminder. And, you know, it, it's I, not, I think it's, that kind of... I know exactly what you're saying. It's you know, for me, I, be, I became an atheist at around 21. And, um, but I had been questioning since like 15. And, and my questioning from 15 to like 17 or 18 was just not ever doubt that the God existed, but just like I just couldn't understand the things that didn't add up, the things that didn't make sense because of what you were saying, the social reinforcement around where everyone believed or seemed to believe. And you're just like, well, what am I missing? What this doesn't make sense. I got to be missing something because everybody is in on this thing, and I'm I'm not getting it. And then it then I finally become an atheist. And you're right, it does stick with me. It's not just that 21 years of my life I was this, and I feel like I don't know that it's wasted. What I would have done differently, um, but it's not only that 21 years that I was believing this, what I believe to be a falsehood, but it was the the six years of the turmoil of the, of the struggle of the back and forth. Why am I so different? What am I missing? What's wrong with me? Those years. And especially those where I was, you know, more cognizant, more aware of what was going on around me. Um, 
as I'm coming online being an adult, I was wrestling with what is wrong with me about this topic. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's it. You know, the, we, we kind of suffer. Um, I, I think a lot of disbelief is kind of born out of some kind of suffering. And, um, you know, we, we seek out the antidote to that. And I think that kind of goes back to the prison stats in, in that that's really, to me, embodies why I'm an anti-theist, because when you look at the numbers and the psychology and the sociology and study after study, you find that people who believe are oftentimes just misled because they're misinformed. And I say it frequently on my own podcast or or my own scope that, you know, oh, I lost my train of thought. (laughs) Um, It's because having your own podcast is not a bad idea. Right. You're here. Exactly. Oh God, I forgot what I was going to say. It it does seem that for some people, um, Religion at a young age, if I can if I can use kind of a terrible analogy, is a bit like moral training wheels. Um, we could we could certainly develop like a way 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 better set of training wheels, but it seems like that that sort of um, authority idea when you're when you're eight and you're trying to make sense of of. You know, when you feel like someone has treated you unfairly, when when you when you notice for the first time uh, suffering, or you or you come into contact for the first time with the idea of mortality, um, the idea of there being a set of rules, just like there is in every other part of life, and this is what regulates the way that 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 life operates outside of the law. Um, I can see that for some people being something that is relied on something that that makes sense to to a young mind the the it's not something that i would encourage don't don't misunderstand me i think that we could absolutely come up with um for example a a a set of training wheels that didn't encourage negative attitudes towards our neighbors didn't force us to see the world as divided between uh sinners and saved um all of those things i think are 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 negative um, on, on, on a young person's mind. But what really baffles me is why there are so many adults completely, completely ready for, for being an adult in every other way, but still relying on the training wheels and defending them tooth and nail as desperately still needing those on. There seems to be an unwillingness or an inability perhaps to say, you know what, I can balance on two wheels now. I can define morality based on the well-being of sentient creatures. I don't need the man in the sky to let me know what is right and wrong, especially when with an adult mind you begin to see the contradictions in this narrative. Right. Uh, Well, I I think, um, you know, a lot of the kind of – morality and stuff about it. Uh, we, you were talking about training wheels in that 
I don't necessarily think that training wheels in, in a secular sense are necessarily needed because as the article in both is, as you were saying, it's all kind of born out of empathy. So long as we always remember, and I too was taught this at a very young age. My mother used to say it though. She says it less now. Um, treat others how you would want to be treated. I always remembered that and I still do. And I think that's probably one of the things that led me to disbelief because, you know, people obviously always talked about a loving God, you know, and all I could ever think was, well, you know, how is where, where's the correlation there? What, what loving God it wants us, I mean, is this how God wants to be treated? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's I'm kind of doing a poor job of explaining this, but um it is. It's it's all empathy. It's just simply remembering that the person who you're angry with or whatever issue crops up, you just have to remember that that, too, is a person with trials and tribulations. You don't know what kind of day they're having. You don't know what kind of life they've had. You don't know whether they, they got someone with cancer at home. And you just constantly have to remind yourself that, it's it's not always about you, and in most times it's not about you. And that when you act out of empathy, people are much more likely to respond to you empathetically um, because they know that you have done so to them in the past. There's a level of reciprocity there that I, I think to me kind of forms the the morality of all mankind. Um, it is, uh, you know, one of it, it's. I've referred to it before as being the biological recognition of two heads are better than one. <clears throat> right, right. It, it, um, that that altruistic behavior, that that empathy. Um, the idea that you would look at yeah, the, the idea of karma, you know, where oh, you're, you're getting back what you put out, not in a supernatural sense, but in a sense that if you run around acting like an asshole, treating people like shit all the time, and then in return, people treat you like shit and act like an asshole to you because that's what you put out in the world. And so you recognize as you said, that man, when I when I treat this guy nice, and then he treats me nice back, and then we have a a, a relationship that's beneficial to each other. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that's kind of where anti theism comes in, in that religion tells you that that's not the case because you're God's chosen person or that somehow you're special because you believe religion a b or c that just kind of gives you permission to be like okay well i don't have to worry about these people because they're they're not christian or they're not muslim or you know whatever <clears throat> um that you're given special rights and that's the thing um that is the opposite of empathy you are not special <laughs> yeah I, um, I i said this a couple of weeks ago on the show when Maris hosted with me that, that, that what, what a lot of times the religious are seeking is not equality or equal treatment, but special privileges. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of that is 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 born out of the ignorance that is is religion because you you just get taught these things that have no basis in reality. And, well, and that go ahead. No, please continue. My thing is stupid, so I just want to tack it onto the end before Corey moves on. At all. <laughs> uh, uh, well, yeah, and and anytime you make decisions out of ignorance, that's going to lead to suffering. Not always, always, but a lot of the time, because that's the thing. If you walk into a situation blind or expecting a different result. You are going to be, uh, you know, disabused of your misconceptions. You're going to realize that, oh, it turns out it's not that way. I just stepped into, you know, a world of shit and, and, you know, I was going to be fine, you know, because God had my back when the reality is completely the opposite. Essentially, you've come totally unprepared for the situation you walked into. Well, what I was going to say is it refers back to Corey's training wheels, moral training wheels. I'm, as soon as he said that, it, 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 it resonated with me because I, I sort of agree with that, that religion is used as moral training wheels. And, and you said the perfect thing, Corey, you said at about the age eight, they start giving you that and um, using that. And, and that's the age where you just lost the first training wheels, especially here in America, where I'm speaking from is I consider the Santa Claus myth, and story uh, a moral training wheels and a Christian training wheels to get you to behave a certain way so that this invisible guy that no one has ever seen who is, trust me, all good and loves you and all that stuff, but he keeps track of your good deeds and your bad deeds, and he will punish you in the form of not rewarding you the rewards that you're promised at the end of this year of being good. When you lose those training wheels, it's about the age of eight. It's like six, seven, eight when, when kids discover this. And I remember when I discovered it, uh, my defense to, the, to my friend who had told me was, no, Santa Claus is real because he's friends with God. So I, I, I had the correlation, the Christmas, the religious correlation, and I knew that it was there. But then when I went to my mom and she told me, yeah, no, there is no Santa Claus, I remember being mad at my friend for telling me. And it's sort of the way atheists are viewed, where, where the, the, the older kid who who now knows that Santa Claus isn't real and we're telling the younger kids and we're not supposed to do that. I mean, I, as an atheist, never told my kids about Santa Claus. I mean, they, I, I told them about them, I, I, about him. I told them the story, but I, I told them that it wasn't real from the age that they can conceptualize it, you know, maybe four, three, four, five, but beyond younger than that, it wasn't necessary, but I wanted them to know that I was never going to lie to them, but I, I gave them the caveat that they shouldn't tell other kids. So I, as an atheist who wants to spread truth was like, no, no, don't ruin their fantasy. Let them have it. Don't give them the truth. So there is this negative connotation to the people who, who bring truth and, and shatter fantasies. Yeah. And I, I think you, you, you kind of nailed it there in that, uh, you stated that when, when you found out that God, or excuse me, that uh, Santa Claus wasn't real, you were angry at your friend. And I think that that kind of speaks to the kind of false hope that religion empowers people with. Because when people like me come along, and I like to always refer to religion as, as people's, as 
their safety blanket. And when I pull on that or, or when I, you know, go after it, you know, people get very upset, you know, like, why are you doing this? Why can't you just let people have it? You know, atheists do it to me all the time. And, and that's the thing. It's, it's not that I'm, I'm here to harm people because that's not the case. I, I don't want to make you sad. I don't want to upset you or depress you. Um, it's, it's my desire to protect you. <laughs> I know that sounds strange, because, you know, you, you feel as if I'm, I'm trying to tear away this thing that you greatly value, but that's why I kind of refer to it as a safety blanket, because we all know that hiding underneath the covers doesn't stop the monsters. Um, you know, it, it just, it doesn't. Exactly. I like that. Um, well, guys, we've got uh, another caller. We've got uh, Robert Hamilton, a uh, friend of the show from Ottawa, Canada. Uh, Robert, are you there? Yes, I'm here. How are you doing? Good. How are you today? Doing just great. I just want to uh, mention, uh, this, I've never phoned into any place before, but uh, this is kind of like the, the voice from the distant peanut gallery who... Uh, Sits and lurks at uh, and all these uh, scopes that you guys have been uh, doing. I, I follow all. Of, I follow all of you guys. You know, each one of you, and uh, have watched. Have spent so many hours watching each one of you scoping, and it is uh, it is great entertainment. I should. I, I I gotta say, even when you know, like, I don't know when when Corey's sitting out sitting out smoking by the, sitting out smoking by the door. Or Matt sitting out smoking outside and peeing. I mean, those guys are freaking fun. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So um, I just want to um, uh, talk, again uh, come to the main topic, I guess, for uh, of topic uh, of the show that talks about uh, anti-theism, and uh, uh, I'd want to make a bit of a distinction because um, theists often. Uh, confuse uh, the concept of uh, anti-theism. Um, and I'd make a distinction between that and uh, anti-deism and anti uh, being an anti-religious. Um, my, uh, where I sort of settle on in terms of the, the concept of uh, anti-theism really comes from my exposure to Christopher Hitchens, who talked about being an anti-theist and uh, not wanting uh, there to be a god if one existed, um, because he had he's made the, the positive claim. Um, I think this is central. The concept of anti-theism makes the positive claim that religion causes harm, and um, I think that is really core to the concept and also core to the reaction of theists. Uh, that that stance alone is what they would f- refer to as militant atheism. So um, I, I think that um, uh, yeah, I mean, I can see the dis- I can see the distinction in, in terms of when when uh, talking with theists uh, that um, yes, you know, an agnostic uh, atheist and you're, you're putting the burden of proof back on them, even though they try and foist it onto you. Um, if uh, you're prepared to make any positive claim, I think any anti-theistic claim of your religion is causing harm every day and in in, in thousands of ways can be a, defend, a defendable positive claim uh, that an anti-theist can make. 
I would uh, I would wholeheartedly agree. Um, and and you've done a, you've done a good job of uh, of helping us establish the difference here. Um, atheism, of course, is nothing more than the lack of belief in God or gods. This is this is probably the the most common misconception, the most common uh, uh, issue that we run into is having to get people to understand what simple atheism is. It is not the positive claim that God does not exist. It is not a declaration of Satanism. It is not being an antichrist or eating babies or anything else. It is the lack of belief in God or gods. Antitheism is a little bit different. And there are some competing uh, uh, definitions. Um, I've, I've heard people explain that uh, pantheism is anti-theistic because it believes in a bunch of gods or it believes in a different kind of God. I think that was kind of what you were referencing by saying anti-deism versus anti-theism. But you're, you're, you're so correct in, in stating that to be an anti-theist um, one must one must actually believe that theism is negative, that believing in God and the things that go along with that are inherently negative. Um, you are actually opposed to the belief in God, not just lacking a belief in God uh, for any number of reasons. And it's not a label that everyone claims or should claim. Uh, and there are a lot of people who will denounce anti-theism just because it feels vitriolic. It feels uh, like you're coming from a place of attack. But perhaps right. we are a little bit, and that's well. I mean, that's okay. I, I certainly, I certainly think that Hitchens in his day was the, uh, a, certainly a source uh, of attack um, uh, in terms of making a positive claim, and he quite forcefully uh, at, at the time. Uh, made the case for religion causing harm, and uh, and regardless of what the religion was, and so I, I think that it is possible to put together um, uh, a strong case that religion uh, and uh, that that there's a case against the. Theory. Uh oh, did we lose him? Oh, I think oh, I might here. have lost. Him. Oh, there we go. I'm here. Hello. Okay. okay. Hello. Yeah, oh, I can hear you, Robert. I can hear you. You cut out for a moment. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I don't know where I cut out, but um, yeah, I just want uh, I just wanted to underscore that whole idea that um, anti-theism uh, is re- often referred to by theists as militant atheism, and um, often by militant theists who who use that use the claim uh, use the term militant atheist. I've I've got a, a a quote. I'm glad that you used the term militant atheism. Um, this is from Lawrence Krauss. He said, 500 years of science have liberated humanity from the shackles of enforced ignorance. We should celebrate this openly and enthusiastically, regardless of whom it may offend. If that is what causes someone to be called a militant atheist, then no scientist should be ashamed of the label. <clears throat> yeah, that's, uh, I, that's very strong. Uh, um. I, I think Daniel Dennett said it absolutely best when he said there is no polite way to suggest to someone that they've devoted their entire lives to a folly. Oh, Matthew, that is fantastic. That is, that is from so an good. interview 
in the atheism, atheism tapes, I was referencing that specific conversation earlier today with Corey. I said, Daniel Dennett from his mouth would be the best, but I just can't remember exactly what you said. And you just nailed it. Yeah. That's, and, that, and he, he took up that idea after um, the suggestions from Richard Dawkins that he should be more rude, quote unquote, rude when he's approaching the theists about their belief. Um, this is a conversation, Robert, I'm glad you brought up, brought up this distinction because this is a conversation I had with my girlfriend earlier today about I am an anti-theist. And, when, and that's just the title of me that participates in anti-theism, which is against the religion. But it sounds um, to her, and she said to, to other people, that when you say you're anti-theist, that you're an anti-theist, that you are anti-theist, like against the individual believer. And yes. I wanted to make that distinction that no, that is not what it is. It's against the religion. It's like Matthew said, from, from my want to protect them, to, to uh, keep them from, wh- what did you say, Matt? You're going into the world, they think they're prepared. They think God's got their back. And, oh, shit, no, he doesn't. I'm in this alone, and this is a shit storm. I think you, I think you put your finger on also a very key distinction on uh, between – um, criticizing ideas and criticizing those who have the ideas, and, and I think that's one of the the subtexts in in the concept of the of the term militant atheism is that uh, those who 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 charge others are militant atheists uh, are in some way offended uh, that uh, the criticism is going is of the of the believer and not of the belief, uh, just as one does you know one attacks cancer not the cancer victim. That the the uh, the idea of militant atheism that that is is not an attack on on people but on ideas. Right, right, very well Absolutely. said. I, I want to kind of jump in here real quick. I want to thank you a great deal for bringing this up because um, I was thinking about this earlier, especially with the. I was actually even specifically thinking of Hitchens. Um, and and not to discredit the man because I think he he was brilliant brilliant human being, um, and there is a lot to be said for being frank with people, but I often think sometimes we as atheists and anti-theists get kind of more caught up in the fact that we see each other as ideological enemies, and I think it took me a long time to come to terms with the fact that. While we are, uh, I suppose, to some degree, ideological enemies, we're not enemies in the idea that we're we're trying to harm each other. It's it's more, and as I said before, an act of protection. Um, well, the the, the underlying I mean, concept of religion causing harm is that this is immoral, right? This, it's essentially a more a moral argument. Say say what now? That the concept of religion causing harm underlying anti-theism is a moral argument that that religion should not cause harm. It is morally in, inappropriate to cause harm in this way. Right, and well, that that's kind of what I mean is 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 that it's not an attack on the person. Um, I I don't see that as being reasonable. You you can't go after a single person. Obviously, you know if they're encouraging you know, violence and things like that. That's one thing. But I, I think some of the the discussions that atheists and, and theists have 
um, wind up kind of just evolving into these uh, shit-slinging uh, contests. And, and it took me a long time to get away from that. I, I'm not above criticizing someone, you know, it's, but my criticisms are always to the belief and not the believer. Like if you ever notice in my periscopes, when people tend to go after me, it's really rare that I respond with ad hominems back or, or, or personal attacks. I usually stay strictly to the attack of the ideas. <clears throat> right. And, um, we we it's very important for us to uh be wary of of thinking of of really anyone as as an enemy now in life that that may at points occur um but when we're having a discussion uh the the worst thing i want to think of the person i'm talking to is that this person is my opponent um as matt said unless you're unless you're saying that we should that we should take our god belief and go inflict it at the edge of the sword on people, then, then I'm more than happy to, to be your ideological opponent um, and not, and not uh, uh, attack somebody, as you said, using, using ad hominem. That's, that's never going to be helpful. Uh, in order to, to actually make progress with the debate, you're doing it in one of two ways. You're either trying to change the person you're talking to's mind. You're trying to uh, win in the sake of, of getting them to see your point of view and agreeing with it. Or, more likely, you are debating for the sake of the audience. It's about uh, you and your opponent, and it's not likely that you're going to be so brilliant in your remarks that they're going to come out of it blinking in the sunlight and completely changing their ideology. It's much more likely that you're going to have a group of people watching, and what they are gauging is, of course, the validity of your arguments and the, the, the ability that you have to state them in a, in a concise way. Um, but they're also they're also watching to see who can win the the interpersonal communication element. They're also watching to actually get somewhere. And it's too easy if you let emotion uh, get in between yourself and the point that you're trying to make that you will uh, not only fail yourself and dismantle your ability to be taken seriously, but that you will also uh, um, isolate your audience and show them that you're not coming at it from a place of, of knowledge or of interest, but rather from a place of, of emotion and an attempt to tear the other person down. I think that it's fair to say that the three of us are humanists. Um, and so we tend to see humans as holding a, a great potential for both good and bad, but that in general, humans should be held up as a good thing, and that what is in the interest of the welfare of people is also a good thing and should be what defines morality and ethics. We're interested in what people have to say and do, and if we have any interest in anthropology or history, it is inescapable that religion is something that is a rather long and colorful chapter in the human tapestry. To be a... Uh, uh, and somebody who, who expects and is interested in culture um, means that you must understand that religion is very, very common, very, very diverse, and exists all over the world. To see that and anybody who believes in it as an enemy would, of course, be detrimental. Instead, it's about encouraging humanistic ideas, which are almost always antithetical to religious ones. So is it possible to be an anti-theist and a humanist? I believe that's what we all absolutely. are. Yeah, I, I would absolutely say that's 100% the case because, as I said before, uh, at least for me anyways, 
um, you know, I, my anti-theism is strictly born out of my desire to help people. Um, I see the harm that it does, the, and not just the obvious harm of things like war and child molestation and the subjugation of women, but the, the guilt that violating, uh, you know, these, these tenets and precepts of religion puts on people. Um, because, you know, when people have sex outside of marriage, they feel guilty because, you know, they're, you know, they're like, oh, you know, I've betrayed God. What have I done? I, you know, I did this bad thing that the, you know, the Bible says I shouldn't do. And they walk around with that in their head, you know, thinking that there's some terrible person when they've really done nothing wrong. I mean, especially where sex is concerned, you know, this is the most natural thing in the world. You should, you know, but yet we attach this religious shame to it and, and, you know, tell people, Oh, you know, if you're gay or bad and, you know, if you, if you engage in this sex act or that sex act, you know, it's, it's immoral. And uh, that's not appropriate. That's not how adults behave. And what's more is, especially when it comes to sex, it, it stands in direct conflict of our nature because we are hardwired to to uh, have sex, you know, it's 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 about the preservation of the species. Um, so the idea that you can be anti-theist and humanist is is not only true, but I, I think that a lot of times you'll be hard pressed to find one without the other. I think they very much go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, anyway, I just wanted—I just wanted to say hello to you guys and uh, yeah, carry on, carry on with the show. Um, I, I just uh, wanted to thank you guys for for the great uh, time that you guys are, are are spending scoping. I watch, as I say, watch a, a lot of you uh, uh, spending a lot of time on this. Um, I, I think that maybe you have a sense of, uh, of the responsibility that you may have uh, in terms of representing atheism each time people see your scopes, that uh, you are, when you are scoping, uh, the face of atheism, and so that there is a, there's an element of responsibility there that um, I think that um, is, uh, I think, well handled. Oh, yeah, I, thank that you. That is much appreciated. That is awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Very, very kindly said, um, and, and, I, and, I, and I would tend to agree. I think there is, there is a, um, a level of responsibility, felt or otherwise, where if we're if we're going to to get out there and and put that word in front of our name and and have the have the balls to start talking about it um, there is a responsibility to to know what we're saying to say it to say it well and fairly to be open to criticism and to be willing to um uh, <laughs> for lack of a better term, turn the other cheek if need be. Um, it's it's valuable to to be able to um, um, to to represent atheism in our own small little little pockets of the world, our own little pockets of the internet, and um, and and that should be seen as uh, as uh, as as a privilege and something that uh, that comes with uh, at least some responsibility. Robert, thank you so very much for calling in. Um, I know that you're usually here for the podcast, and that was a fantastic call. Please feel free to call in anytime, any week. You are always welcome here. It was uh, it was a pleasure to get to talk to you in person, my friend. It was great. Thanks. Lots of fun. Thanks. Bye. When we um, when we talk about the the actual dangers that 
religion pose, the harm that they do. Um, I think that uh, that it might be helpful to to mention one of the one of the big ones. Uh, like Matt said, okay, we all we all know that there's a lot of war. We all know that there's a lot of violence. Uh, you've got you've got uh, uh, jihadism. You've got uh, any level of terrorism. Um, is 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 all too often associated with some sort of monotheistic belief. You've got the obvious examples, things that religious people uh, seem inclined to do more so than someone who doesn't think that they have heaven's approval when they decide to do horrendous things. But there is there is one topic, and Scott and I discussed this a little bit before the show, um, but uh, uh, Kat was good enough to get us some numbers. The idea of circumcision, um, especially female genital mutilation, this seems to me to be a practice that only occurs inside of religion. I, I know of no uh, secularist or, 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 or motivation for sawing away at the, at the clitoris of a, of a, of a baby girl. Um, other than some bizarre, fevered interpretation of a divine command, um, we've got some uh, some numbers, and the numbers now stand at 200 million girls and women alive today in 30 countries have uh, been victimized by female genital mutilation. This is I suppose, fortunately, not something that we come into contact with a great deal in the United States, uh, but it certainly is something that occurs around the world. Just to break that down a little bit, percentage of girls and women aged 15 to 49 who have undergone female genital mutilation or cutting uh, in the top 10 countries in Somalia, 98%. 98% of girls and women aged 15 to 49 have been subjected to, fe- to, to female genital mutilation. Uh, Guinea, 97%. Sierra Leone, 90%. Mali, 89%. Egypt, 87%. Uh, another 87% in Sudan, um, and, 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 and so on. Um, I, this continues to shock me that there is this large of a problem that this thing which has been uh i'm I'm fairly certain universally outlawed um that is seen as as a crime by uh unicef by the un um that this is still something that is this widely done this idea that so many religions at least the monotheisms see female sexual pleasure as next to Lucifer himself, this idea that the female orgasm is something to be hissed at, this absolute hatred for any kind of pleasure when it comes to sexuality. Those numbers are horrifying. Like, I knew it was a problem, and I knew that we were going to talk about it, and we talked about it earlier today, but those numbers, holy fuck, that's disgusting. Yeah, honestly, that's 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 pretty. Sta- I knew the numbers were going to be in going to be high when you started naming the countries, um, but I never thought that they'd be quite 
that high. I mean, that's almost in, in every case, that's almost a hundred percent of the population. I mean, that's, that's entire swaths of female populations that have endured immense amounts of suffering. And I can't even imagine it because I mean, the highest concentration of nerve endings in the female body is in the clitoris. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I don't know if this is accurate because I don't have it in front of me. I remember reading at some point that the clitoris alone has twice as many nerve endings as the entire shaft of the of the of the penis. Um, this is a a very sensitive and private zone uh, that is being that is being hacked away at. Uh, and as I was saying uh, to Scott earlier, and this this gets slightly away from 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 specifically what we're talking about. I, 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 here's an idea that I cannot square in my head. A person believes that God is an all-perfect, omnipotent, omniscient being that created the universe and all things, created the earth for the human mammal, created everything so that we would be able to survive with us in mind, and crafted the, entire, the entirety of reality for us so that he could do a very, very specific thing. Imagine being someone who believes in this and watching your baby daughter being born and thinking how almost perfect this is, how very nearly perfect God's creation is. All we need to do is one little thing here, one little snip. We just need to get inside and saw away at this, at this infant's genitals and then God's creation will be perfect. Oh man, yeah. I I, th- I think you, yeah you you that you nailed it. Um, that's absolutely. I I just I can't even begin to think how one could even watch such a thing, let alone uh, suggest it as an idea. I mean, to to have this wonderful little bundle of of joy and happiness, and and to think to yourself, you know, uh, let's take a knife to it. Right. I mean, yeah, that's, this is that's exactly just, what came up in the conversation today. Is that repulsed at, at, um, as we are at it? How do you how do you come up with the idea? It's just insanity. Yeah, you and it. Honestly, to those of you out there watching, I, I think for me, things like this kind of embody my anti-theism. Um, yeah, like I say, I, I, I see the less subtle things too, but, you know, these these truly gruesome acts um, in the name of God, um, are not only what led me to be an atheist, or excuse me, an anti-theist in the first place, but led me back to being an anti-theist after after I kind of had some conflict about <clears throat> uh, disabusing people of their their religious notions. Um, it's it's it just sickens me on a level that I can't even imagine. You know, I get I you know I get teary-eyed over, you know, like sad commercials and shit, you know, and 
here, here are these people that are, you know, mutilating their own children in the name of, you know, tradition or a holy book or a guy. I just, I can't, I can't fathom how anybody would ever think to do such a thing. It, um, it, 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 it's truly uh, a disgusting practice and one that seems to have to have no limit in its ability to, to make me um, just sad and, and, and mournful for the, I mean, 200 million um, women who, who are going to suffer, not, not just if, if nothing else, just being able to enjoy the wonders of having a clitoris one day. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, For all of life's miseries, at least they're sex, man. That's awesome. And, and, you know, this is, this is completely denied from these people since well before they even have the ability to fight back. Uh, No, no decision provided. It's completely antithetical to personal autonomy. Uh, You, you are, you are removing the sovereignty of an individual in the name of something that is ridiculous so that you can uh, handicap them in a way for, uh, for life. Um, Now, as I was saying, uh, female genital mutilation is something that we don't uh, deal with nearly as much in the United States. I actually read something yesterday, I think, in the New York Times, where um, the first person to be convicted of uh, female genital mutilation just got done serving a 10-year prison term. This was a person from Ethiopia. I think, uh, if I remember the story correctly, they just got done uh, serving 10 years in prison, and they uh, they left and were immediately um, uh, kicked out kicked out of the country. I think they they had to go back to uh, to Ethiopia. But that's sort of a, a singular thing. Like I, I'm sure where it happens, it is no less horrific uh, and and must be fought. And if anybody's got uh, information on female genital mutilation occurring in the United States, we would certainly want to uh, help shed some light on that. Um, but something that occurs much closer to home in, uh, in large numbers and another, uh, another fine demonstration of how religion is not just something that uh, we might, as atheists say, is ridiculous to believe in, but is actually negative, um, would be gay conversion therapy. This has been going on in the United States for a very long time, uh, and it still goes on today. Um, I've got some links here. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna jump into them too deep because we've only got about 30 minutes left in the show. Um, but uh, ABC um, went undercover to expose a gay conversion camp. Um, they talked to uh, a young man named Lucas who was sent to a camp run by Pastor John David Young. Um, you wanna. You wanna meet a creep? Uh, this guy was convicted on multiple counts of aggravated child abuse. Um, he received a 20-year jail sentence for abusive activities at gay conversion camps, um, thank goodness. But as they said in the report, for, for every one of these camps that we actually have a name for and we can point to on a map, there are dozens more that we don't know about. Um, these are places that don't uh, often uh, operate with any kind of licensing or regulation. Um, they, are, they are quite frequently surrounded by barbed wire. Uh, children are sent by their parents uh, almost universally against their will, um, where they are kept in basically prison conditions. Uh, it's like it's like juvie, but without the regulation 
to try to protect uh, the rights of a prisoner. Um, the parents usually pay huge sums of money to these organizations, to these centers that are faith-based in order to use all sorts of pseudoscience and, and sometimes going as far as electroshock therapy in order to try to remove the condition or disease or whatever perverted term people want to apply to homosexuality uh, in order to justify the harm that they are willing to do to children in the name of removing homosexuality, which is, of course, uh, anti-biblical. Um, because God doesn't like gay, uh, none of us should either. It shouldn't be tolerated, and it must be removed by any means necessary, regardless of what science can tell us about how teenagers, no one for that matter, is capable of choosing to not be gay. It's not something that can be uh, medically reversed in a, in a person, nor should we want to. Um, this, is, this is systemic abuse that happens in many states, especially in the deep south of the United States, the so-called Bible Belt, um, where children are uh, very, very often um, abused uh, sometimes even neglected in the name of removing this this terrible, terrible sin of wanting to touch your nervy bits to the nervy bits of another person who, wait a minute, happens to not be the opposite gender. It's an absolutely disgusting notion. And um, obviously isn't working and and in many cases like you're saying is used as a uh, a praying ground for uh, predators like this guy absolutely and and that's kind of what I was immediately thinking while you were talking about that is you, you started out with with this creep and my immediate thought was this is what religion does it builds this wall of nicety for the brutal to hide behind it, it, you know, because whoever, you know, because we automatically think, oh, pastors, priests, or well, at least the, those of us who aren't atheists or anti-theists, we, we assume, oh, well, you know, he's a pastor. He must be a great guy. Well, that's not the case because what that does is it builds this just absolutely brilliant, impenetrable wall that society just can't get around because, well, you can't accuse the priest of touching kids. What's wrong with you? Are you out of your mind? I mean, it, we see it in movies all the time. Oh, you, you can't question the priest, man. You know, it's, it's always the doctor or the judge or the lawyer or whatever. You know, he's a priest. What kind of crazy person are you? What? Well, that's the thing. These people are not off limits because of their connection with God or, or the supposed connection with God, rather, or, or their knowledge of a particular book. That doesn't impress me. That doesn't make you anybody besides someone who is just maybe a little bit more exceptionally delusional than those that follow you. <clears throat> um, it does. It, to me, it's, it's this, that's one of the greatest failures of religion is it's, it's this internalized thing where, you know, everybody's outsiders, kind of like I was talking about earlier. You know, I don't have to worry about anybody else. God's got my back. I got my own thing. My group's here with me. We're all going to protect each other. Well, the reality is, is most of those people aren't looking out for you, and some of them have truly cruel intentions for you. There's, um, there's, a, there's a, a quote that I will try to paraphrase. Um, I think it was actually by, uh, by a bishop. And he said that religion essentially highlights 
what you are. Um, religion does not provide people in general with an actual moral code or informs them how to be as if they otherwise wouldn't know. It's not like until you learned about Jesus, you had, you were completely amoral and, and it didn't compute why you wouldn't want to harm other people or steal their things or infringe upon their rights. This is something that is fairly easily understood in childhood and is reinforced by a basic culture and society because we are social creatures. Um, we've all heard this quote before, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it anyway from Steven Weinberg. With or without religion, good people can behave well and bad people can do evil. But for good people to do evil, that takes religion. We're, we're, not, we're not necessarily suggesting that people that aren't religious are going to be good. That is, not, that is not the notion here. The notion is not people should be atheists because atheists are superior in morality. Now, I will happily argue with somebody why atheism absolutely lends itself to actually being moral, whereas believing in religion lends itself to being immoral, that's a fairly easy case to make, especially when we're talking about monotheism. But without religion, we're people. You're going to have good people. You're going to be bad. You're going to have bad people. If there was no religion on the planet, you would still have criminals and murderers and thieves, and you would still have uh, humanitarians and, and people that ran charities and altruistic individuals. You would still have both things. But to get a good person to think, not only is it okay for me to do something that without religion I would think is bad, but I actually should. There's some kind of mandate that suggests that I should treat people that this book from 2,000 years ago or more identifies as bad, that I should actually harm this person, whereas otherwise I would not. Religion is incredibly powerful when it comes to that. And when you can get the word reverend in front of your name, when you can get the power of a church behind you, when you can hide behind whatever notions there are in society or law that suggest that religious individuals and religious organizations need to be protected, you end up getting a license to do whatever you want. Not everyone is going to avail themselves of that opportunity, but the creeps and the bad people and the assholes who get hold of that kind of power they are capable of doing whatever the hell they want, and they get a special pass from society, regardless of whether or not that society thinks of itself as secular. Well, uh, you know, I was just telling someone recently that, you know, religion is just fashion for the mind. Um, people choose their religion for the exact same reason that they choose their car, not how it looks but how it makes them look. It's, and that's kind of what I was talking about earlier is that it creates this wall for people. <laughs> Thank you. It creates this wall that people hide behind. You know, it's, it's, it's this beautiful facade that is hiding this immense world of cruelty and violence and malice and, and deviancy and just all this really sick, twisted shit. <laughs> There's a um, there's a there's a there's a a book. <laughs> I'm not sure um, if uh, if Matt, if you've heard of this, it was brought to my attention again by our friend Kat, um, and uh, I think this this takes it takes it one more step in demonstrating how, um, regardless of of whether or not religious people 
are inherently trying to do something that is harmful. It can too often provide the structure in which abuse can happen and people are willing to accept and actually encourage and reinforce that abuse because they think it is divinely inspired. Um, there was a book, uh, uh, this is a few years ago, called To Train Up a Child, uh, Child Training for the 21st Century. Um, I've, got a, I've got a short article about this. Michael and Debbie Pearl are the ministers behind No Greater Joy Ministries Incorporated, the organization responsible for publishing To Train Up a Child, a parenting guide used by some evangelical Christians to teach their children complete obedience. To Train Up a Child advocates the use of severe corporal punishment and even starvation as a means of training children to be wholly submissive. In the last seven years, the deaths of three children, all adopted, have been attributed to use of Pearl's book. Four-year-old Sean Paddock was killed by his adoptive mother, Lynn Paddock, in 2006. Seven-year-old Lydia Schatz was killed by her adoptive parents, uh, Kevin and Elizabeth, in 2010. And 13-year-old Hannah Williams was killed by her adoptive parents, Larry and Carrie, in 2011. In all these cases, the parents were convicted of murder. Alicia Bayer, who has written extensively about the Pearls for Examiner, uh, has written extensively about the Pearls for Examiner.com, notes that their training methods include using plastic tubing to beat children since it is too light to cause damage to the muscle or bone, wearing the plastic tubing around the parent's neck as a constant reminder to obey, swatting babies as young as six months old with instruments such as a 12-inch willowy branch, center plastic tubing, or a wooden spoon, blanket training, babies by hitting them with an instrument if they try to crawl off a blanket on the floor, Beating other children with rulers, paddles, belts, and larger tree branches. Training children with pain before they even disobey in order to teach total obedience. Giving cold water baths, putting children outside in cold weather, and withholding meals as discipline. Hosing off children who have potty training accidents and inflicting punishment until a child is without breath to complain. Hannah Williams, the most recent victim of the Pearl's methods, died after having been beaten, starved, and left outside to suffer hypothermia. Uh, The Williams were sentenced at the end of October and will likely die in prison, but in spite of a third child being murdered as a result of the teachings in their book, the Pearls refused to bear any responsibility or show any remorse for promoting such terrifyingly dangerous ideas. Um, And then there is a quote from Michael Pearl um, from his website. Hannah Williams' parents were given the maximum prison sentences. Articles are appearing in blogs and newspapers across the country that are full of fabrications, lies, and misstatements about to train up a child. It should be It should not be taken as fact just because it is written somewhere. What the Williams did is diametrically opposed to the philosophy of No Greater Joy Ministries and the content of the book. The motivation of NGJ is to provide materials to help parents raise healthy and happy children. The methods outlined in the book have been endorsed by psychologists, psychiatrists, and child behavior therapists and are widely used to change inappropriate behavior. Um, The proper application of the book could have corrected their poor parenting and prevented the abuse and death of Hannah Williams. Again, this is something that occurs in the United States. Uh, I believe that this book was at least on some bestseller lists for a while. Um, This demonstrates the framework that religious belief in the institutionalized nature of certain sects of Christianity in America can provide the cover, groupthink, and reinforcement to do things that I don't think anyone could label as short of uh, child abuse um, in the, in the, in the name of, of raising your child to be godlike or to raise the child the way that God wants. Um, what's the, um, 
uh, what's the old? Uh, oh, I've I've lost it. I misplaced it. The 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 Bible verse about uh, sparing the rod. He who spares the rod hates his child. Um, where corporal punishment is actually seen as as divinely inspired and a commandment from the Most High as something that should be implemented against people. This is this is. It shouldn't even have to be said. This is bad. This is not healthy for children. This is not the appropriate way to handle children. And this is a perfect way if you were trying to design a system in which you could, you could handicap children with all kinds of trauma and terrible ideas, self-hatred, self-loathing, uh, despising authority figures later in life, uh, not liking others who are not subjected to the same thing, instilling bullying attitudes. This is how it's done. And it is all done under a mandate supposedly from this all-just, supreme, omniscient, omnipotent creator of the universe. I would say that what they've got there is a recipe for a sociopath. Um, what you just described to me is, is um, if these were done to sol- if these things were done to soldiers, those would be considered war crimes. You know, You're absolutely. Think about the disconnect there. Oh, well, it's, it's okay. I mean, <laughs> to beat anybody with a hose, plastic or not, is just, I mean, that's uh, torture. And then the idea of wearing the hose around your neck to show them that it's, it's here with me constantly. This is part of me. This is what I am to you. You're abuser. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's you know, I mean, I, I, I can't even... To me, this doesn't even sound like a way to raise a children. This is a way to run a rather twisted prison. Right. Uh, honestly, sure. I mean, you, you couldn't even do this in prison. Like you, so, you would, you would be jailed yourself. Right. And uh, to the um, you said the recipe for a sociopath. Um, not saying that this is a, a, a an absolute fact that this is what happened, but there is a, and this goes to your uh, what you were mentioning earlier, Corey, the uh, the prey, the gateway camps, or, or whatever. There's a, a brilliant movie called Dahmer, which is about Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer who cannibalized his victims and was a homosexual. Um, the movie titled Dahmer, starring Jeremy Renner, uh, has this approach that that shows this religious upbringing that correlates um, a child who just happens to be a homosexual with constantly hearing homosexuality is a sin and you're an evil person. If you're homosexual, he just he heard this around would never come out to his family that he was homosexual because of, of how they saw it or how he even saw it. And then you start, the, the individual starts questioning in their mind. The child starts questioning your mind. Well, am I evil? Am I a horrible person? Do I do other bad things? Let me find out. And and exactly a recipe for a sociopath. Yeah. Well, I mean, when when you take those kinds of actions against a person, um, especially in the long term, um, at a very young age, at a formative age, you what you're doing is you're you're teaching that person not only that it's okay to hit. But it's you're also teaching them the things that aren't okay. You're 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 setting them up for a scenario where they're going to have a great deal of self-loathing, and especially where it comes with sexual desire, 
that desire is going to come out eventually. I don't know whether you're gay or straight or what your issue is, but if you try and repress your sexuality or you try to repress another person's sexuality, that will 100% have adverse effects. Because if you just look at any of our primate cousins, when they are denied sex, they act violently a lot. Absolutely. And um, this, uh, we're on, I've said this quote before on the show, but uh, Matt, you brought up the God delusion earlier, and it just fits so well with what we're talking about. Um, It's from Richard Dawkins in that book, The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, suicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. If, the, if yeah, that's where you're getting your moral compass from, that character, no other character in all fiction has that many negative traits to describe them. If that's where you're getting your, this is how I should treat people ideas from, that is going to have adverse effects. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you reminded me, interestingly, uh, of a scenario that I was in one time. I was in um, purchasing a comic book. Uh, I was buying a, one of the Walking Dead compendiums, and uh, sh- uh, she was telling me to, ex- you know, expect the governor. And uh, they had done a vote. Uh, they ranked the, the worst villains um, in comic book. I think it was just strictly comic book history. But I think I think the governor was like number one or number two or something like that. It was very high on the list, and I and I just kind of thought to myself, well, Jesus must or God must have never been featured in a comic book then, because <laughs> in in all his his horribleness doesn't hold a fucking candle to to the God of the Old Testament or the Bible or even the Quran. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah, this 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 narrative, regardless of of the actual real world problems that we can point at, and that we just demonstrated a, a small sample of the things that are out there. Um, first, I don't think that we want to give the idea that we are calling all Christians bad. It probably needs to be said just in case somebody is listening and thinks that that's what we are doing. I do not want to illustrate uh, the Christians of America as all being behind these ideas. Obviously, that is not what we are suggesting. We are suggesting that while these bad things can happen in, in, with religion or without religion, it is with religion that you can convince people who don't want any part of it to go ahead and engage. It is with religion that you can protect these abuses and keep them hidden. It is with religion that you can find a framework in which you can reinforce the idea that everybody should go ahead and be abusive, whether or not people actually adhere to it or not without religion. It is much harder to implement these ideas and certainly harder to justify them with any level of authority. But it's not just about the, the, the real world behavior dangers of believing in things. It's also about your own worldview to, to believe that 
this life doesn't really matter. To believe that uh, what you need to do is follow the teachings of this prophet or that prophet or this Messiah or that Christ in order to make it into heaven one day suggests that you should want heaven, and I don't believe that you should, and suggests that anybody who isn't doing the same thing you're doing deserves hell. Regardless of what you do with that feeling, you can't get it out of your head. If you are using faith to believe in this entire narrative, you have to. You are, it necessarily follows that you are looking out at the vast majority of the rest of your species and thinking they're going to burn for all eternity, and that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, that, that's the thing. Religion is inherently selfish. This, the idea that it offers, it's been said by many an atheist before, that if you do it for the reward of heaven or out of fear or hell, then you're not actually a good person. You're just doing it because you want something. And when you give these priests and rabbis and things like this that, that power to say that, oh, I'm close to God, then you're giving them this extra weight so that when they say insane things like, you know, oh, it's, you know we should really beat this child or, or do this, you know, we, we need to make sure that you're not a, 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 you know, a homo or anything. People take that seriously. You're giving that extra weight because of how you view that person's connection to God. And you don't want that coming back on you. You don't want to violate any of God's tenets because you might not get into heaven if you don't beat your kid. And that is just the most horrible and cruel form of manipulation I have ever heard in my, in my life. And the it's generational. It is indoctrinated. These people teach it to their kids. Those kids teach it to their kids. And it just goes on forever. <clears throat> it seems, um, you know, earlier, earlier we, were, we were discussing uh, just briefly whether or not you could be a, uh, a humanist and an anti-theist. And the more that I think about that question, um, the more I am reminded of how to borrow the, the prefix of that word, antithetical to humanity, theism is. Um, this is something that tells you that you are born a sinner and must fix that in yourself, that you are made wretched, and that God wants you to be something different than what your nature makes you, uh, that you should reject this world the uh, basic uh, pleasures that can be enjoyed and explored responsibly and safely in the name of a, uh, a higher calling, something that will come after you are dead. This uh, encourages misogyny and abuse and xenophobia. And uh, in some chapters of history, things like genocide, it provides justification for anything that without the veil of religion, we would absolutely call a human rights abuse. We are anti-theist because, anti, because theism is antithetical to humanity. And because we are humanists, we are required to fight against this blight that is long past due for, uh, for shedding. Well said, man. Absolutely. I agree. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I just... I think for me... 
what it really comes down to for anti-theism is that I can find very, very few scenarios uh, where belief doesn't result in some form of pain or suffering. Um, and it's, it's just, to me, it seems so obvious, but how, but I, I know that the allure of it, especially because people are indoctrinated so young that it's just hard to get away from because you've relied on it your entire life. It, 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 and not to mention it's, it's backed up by fear. You know, it takes our natural altruistic nature and, and, for those of you out there thinking that oh he's crazy, that's humans aren't naturally altruistic. We're very it is true to say that we there is definitely a duality there. But our altruism is there. It does exist. But religion plays on the other side of that. It plays to our tribalism, it plays to our fears, and it plays to our greed. We want heaven, we don't want to go to hell and you know be afraid at all times of God because you just don't know maybe he'll kill you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 A very fine bookmark for a uh, fantastic discussion. Um, The time went far too fast. Uh, This has been, uh, this has been a, a sincere pleasure uh, and I know that I speak for Scott when I say that uh, that we've that we've greatly uh, appreciated and enjoyed um, having uh, having Captain Atheist join us for tonight's broadcast. Um, in 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 closing, I have I have just a, a couple of short remarks. Nietzsche said, among a great many other things, that God is dead. This has been interpreted plenty of different ways and even inspired a pair of apologetic films designed to attack the philosophical statement while inflating the ever-present persecution complex that afflicts American Christians. College professors are out to get Christians. Liberals are Jesus-hating monsters addicted to debauchery and the terrors of pleasure-fucking. The government is hawkishly looking for any excuse to bring down Uncle Sam's boot on the good, God-fearing people of this great nation while the ACLU stands by licking its devilish lips. All this, of course, is ridiculously untrue and serves only to instill deeper sectarianism against the progressives, the secularists, and the humanists. I tend to agree with Nietzsche's statement from a philosophical and intellectual point of view. We are now hundreds of years past the Enlightenment. We live in the 21st century, in the information age, in a time of unprecedented potential for education. No longer are we terrified creatures the terrified creatures we once were, forced to gaze in wonder at natural phenomena, limited to conjecture, to determine truth about any but the most rudimentary questions facing mankind. Through hard work and scrupulous research, we have been able to answer many of life's biggest questions, and more answers are coming all the time. And as it turns out, none of these big answers has once required the presence of a supernatural force to work. God is unnecessary as a gap filler in our scientific understanding of reality. Morality does not require an authoritarian prime mover to establish the differences between right and wrong. And so, in the epistemological sense, God is dead. We are just trying to dispose of the corpse. Religion has been baked into society and culture for a very, very long time. Something that deep is hard to root out and purge, and therefore so are the many negative attributes that come along with God beliefs. 
This is a disease that we can now see in ways that our forefathers could not, with clarity that eluded our ancestors even a few generations ago. The information age has also bestowed us with the ability to see the dangers of religion in new definition. The ability to defend God epistemologically or morally are fast shrinking. Now is the time to strike. Like an old scab covering a healing wound, religion is ready to be shed by the body of humanity. Stand up against it. Fight. Reject, reject faith-based claims and the solipsistic masochism that comes with desiring a supreme overlord who judges us both in action and thought. Put aside the ideas of an afterlife and focus on what matters, the here and now, the future of Earth and our species, the rights and freedom of people. Welcome to God's Funeral. Once again, we want to thank Captain Atheism, Captain Atheist, I should say. He goes by Captain Atheism on Twitter and Periscope. That's C-A-P-T, Atheism. Follow him on Twitter, guys. Follow him on Periscope. He does a phenomenal program on there, and I encourage everybody to go and engage with him whenever they have the opportunity. We want to encourage you to follow El Duderino, E-L-D-U-D-E-I-R-E-N-O, on Periscope and on Twitter. Talk to him about thermodynamics this week for our Truth Pursuit segment. You can follow the show at ISM Podcast underscore on Periscope and on Twitter, and you can follow myself at Dopinephrine on Twitter and Periscope as well. Also, you've got you guys have got to go and check out EpicureanPop.wordpress.com. That is Captain Atheist blog, and it is phenomenal. I really can't recommend it highly enough. We appreciate each and every one of you for listening today. We want to thank Young Athlon 399 for hosting us on Periscope, as always. Kat for helping us out, and Danny for doing our graphics this week. Everybody have a fantastic St. Patrick's Day, and we will see you all next Wednesday. <laughs>